All right. We are going to get started. Yeah. Everyone should have one of each. One of each. Oh, I'm going to need one of these sheets of paper. Thank you all for coming. This is new. This is something we haven't done before, but we are going to have a go here. So I will explain what these are. These are uh, the books that we're handing out. These are new, and they're all of the basic information condensed to a few words that you need to understand what the gospel is, share it, and then that's what this first gray one is. This yellow one is once you are saved or, or a more immature believer, what do you need to understand to just simply start growing? That's what this one's about. So this one, let's say, if you're an unbeliever, this is, here's the gospel, how do you get saved? This is, once you get saved, what do you do about it? Okay, so um, great resources. They're simple, short. You could read through it, one of these, in an hour, um, unless you want to peruse it, in which case that could take weeks uh, <laughs> because of the depth of the information because uh, it is exhaustive, but I use a few words. So what we're going to do is... And then the sheet of paper that I gave you guys, this is an outline that basically covers all the information in this first gray book in simple points. So we won't be turning pages in these books tonight. We're just simply handing these out so that you guys can read through them and add to your knowledge after we've gone through um, the information. We're going to use this outline on the sheet of paper as our track for what we're covering tonight. Um, I'm going to be teaching through part one. Jacob's going to do part two, and then uh, we'll probably share responsibility for part three because that's kind of got two sections to it. Yeah. So this is going to cover, we won't get into this yellow, uh, anything in the yellow book tonight, but this gray one based on the outline, what is the kingdom of God? What are the steps to be saved? Then it gets into how do you share the gospel or how do you start sharing the gospel practically? And then points of encouragement, practical advice on how you can actually get started in a way that will be effective. That's the plan. Any questions before we get started? Okay. Let's do it. Open your Bibles. We'll go over part one. At the top where on this paper I have main scripture. Acts 17, 30 through 31, we're going to refer to a few times tonight. And if there's one scripture that I encourage you guys to memorize, it's that one. And it's not long, it's short, but if you want to have a really solid passage of scripture in your arsenal to help you out with the basics of the gospel, that would be it. But we're not going to look at that one first. We'll look at that later. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. That's the first scripture on that first bullet point there. Isaiah chapter 9. So what we're covering first right now is what is the kingdom of God? The reason why this is first when it comes to sharing the gospel is because Jesus referred to the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom, hence the title of this book. Jesus called it the gospel of the kingdom. So obviously if we're sharing the good news, we should know why it's called the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is directly tied to what the good news is. So we're answering the question first of what it is. So on this bullet point, the kingdom of God is the government of heaven that will come to earth and replace all other governments. That's how it's taught in scripture. So we're going to look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7 first. Verse 6. This is a prophecy about Jesus. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now turn to Daniel 2. I'll just make a comment on Isaiah as you're turning there. Daniel chapter 2. You see that Jesus' life, his position, is stated that he has a government and he has a kingdom. Do you have a question? Yes. Correct. Yep. Because uh, prophecy about David was that Jesus would inherit. Uh, yeah, the question was, it says David's throne, but his capital H meaning God's kingdom. David's throne, God's kingdom. Jesus inherited that throne, but it's actually over the whole whole earth. So the point was that Isaiah says Jesus has a government and he has a kingdom. And about it, it says of its increase and of its peace, there will be no end. So it's the only kingdom or government that has ever existed that will not end. Every other government has an ending. So Daniel 2, verse 44. says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's the verse where we draw the comment that this government of heaven will come to earth and replace all other governments. And also in Daniel chapter 7, let's turn a little bit further in Daniel. Chapter 7, and we'll look at verse 14. This is talking about Jesus. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel 7 adds, not only are we dealing with an everlasting kingdom, but we're also dealing with one where all people's nations and languages will serve him. So this is, of course, relevant to the earth. And same chapter, go to verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So that verse adds that there's obedience to Christ. So, so far we have, he has a kingdom and a government. It will last forever, replace every other kingdom on the planet. Everyone on the planet will serve Christ and obey him. Or <laughs> there is an alternative. It's not a good one, but there is an alternative. Right now, is everyone in God's kingdom serving and obeying Christ? But they will, which means by the time that the kingdom fully comes, everyone will be obeying Christ. That's because those who do not will be in hell. Let's go to this next bullet point. This is where it gets a little bit hazy for some believers, so we're going to take some time to explain this. Jesus taught the kingdom is here on earth now with believers. But it is coming in full force at the end of the age. So look at Luke 17, verse 21. Luke 17, verse 21. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now, if you look at the previous verse in verse 20, Jesus is given a question. The Pharisees speak and they ask Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. So they're not going to say, see here, see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So Jesus gave half the answer because we are told in Luke 21, verse 31, we're going to go there next. But we're also told that the kingdom is going to come with observation later. What Jesus is talking about now is that right now it doesn't come with observation. So it's not going to be physically visible. 
he said the answer is it's going to be within us, right? Spiritual, right? So the first part of the kingdom that is currently here is the amount that believers possess. So if you are saved, you are in God's kingdom already. You have his kingdom within you. And our job is to spread it. That's why we share the gospel, right? Because we want more people to be in the kingdom. So go to Luke 21 now. 21, verse 31. So this is in the context of the second coming. So if you read Luke chapter 21, this is Jesus talking about when he returns to earth and he describes what's going to happen. Then he says, verse 31, so you also, when you see these things happening, so you see the events of the end times, know that the kingdom of God is near. So he just got done saying that the kingdom is already here and within you. But then he says later, when you see all these things happening, then you'll know that it's near. So it's twofold. It's here with believers, but it's also coming at the end of the age. Now, we're going to look at the next bullet point, which tells you the events that are going to take place when the kingdom comes in full force. So that next bullet point says, when Jesus returns, he will bring his full kingdom and bring judgment for people's sin. Look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. It says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the, to the other. So we got, first thing we know is going to happen when Jesus returns He's going to gather the church, right? That would be the, uh, some people would call it the rapture, basically when believers are gathered uh, to Christ. Then you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is what happens to unbelievers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Starting in verse... mainly verse 8, but we get to look at the end of verse 7. So it says, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8, here's what happens. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. You got two things. Believers get gathered and join Jesus. Everyone else is not pretty. It says what what we just read? Second Thessalonians chapter one verses seven through ten. Verses eight through nine is the main part we're looking at. Yep. Yeah. And then this is kind of a just a side Scripture that I don't have it written here, but if you guys are taking notes, I do think you should write this one down too, just because I believe it's a valuable addition. Just pulling it up real quick. It's about about the point I just made. Yep. So Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28. I probably should have written this down actually on the outline, but you can add it yourself. That's fine. Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28 says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we're told, this is the context of Jesus returning, when he comes, he will come with his kingdom. So, Remember Luke 21, 31 saying that when the end comes, the kingdom of God will be near. 
And Jesus says what he's coming with is his kingdom. There's an uh, example where Paul is reasoning with a Roman politician named Felix. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. It's a passage in Acts. And it says that Paul reasoned with Felix about the kingdom of God, righteousness, and self-control. Now, and then it says Felix was stricken with fear. He began to be afraid. So why would a government official, a Roman politician, be afraid by Paul talking about the kingdom of God? What does Daniel say is going to happen? Yeah. It's going to replace all other kingdoms. Right? So this Roman official is like, I'm out of a job. And flaming fire. Right? That's Second Thessalonians says. That's just kind of a side note there. That's just kind of interesting. You'll find that in Acts. Felix and Paul. Okay. Let's go to this next bullet point. This is where we get down to the relevance of Jesus' crucifixion. So the cross. What does the cross, cross mean for this? People should know the fear and the love of God at the same time. And Jesus' crucifixion shows both. Because we know that the solution to people entering the kingdom and being delivered from the judgment of that kingdom is going to be through believing in Jesus and his death and resurrection. Question back here. Yeah, jumping back a point, I think. You said who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. Can you talk about the difference? Because the first one has come up before where it seems cruel. Just because they don't know God, they're, they're judged. So explain the difference. Okay, so the difference between knowing God and obeying the gospel? Or yeah, it, in that passage, it talks about how he's going to deal with these two kinds of people. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's two different kinds of people. It sounds like that the people who are judged are those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. So everybody who's judged didn't know God and didn't obey the gospel. And it's actually because they didn't obey the gospel that they didn't come to know God. Because you know God through believing and obeying the gospel, which would be his word. You know God through his word. Um, so a failure to recognize the opportunity that God has given to you to know him and be saved from sin is what causes a person to be judged. Failure to obey, I should say. So I won't get into that in extreme detail right now because, yes, that is one scripture that a lot of people will find harsh, but God is a God of wrath and love. And that's what we're dealing with in this bullet point that people shouldn't know the fear and the love of God at the same time. And Jesus' crucifixion shows both. So here's where you get into the solution, what people need to know. Yes. A question about that last passage mm -hmm. that Dave was just talking about. Um, it says, it doesn't talk about believers, it talks about people. It just says those. So would it be those who don't obey the gospel and then they don't know God because of that? You could say that. Because there's people that are believers that don't obey the gospel which means they don't know and obey God. Well, if they were believers, if they're truly believers, they do know God, at least to, to an extent. Well, truly believers. Yeah, true believers. Truly believers. Yeah. But we run, I run into people all the time that say they're believers, but sure, they, they don't obey the gospel. Right. Right. Yeah. What God is concerned about is whether you're obedient to the gospel or not. Correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So... First sub point there about the fear and the love of God. The brutality of Jesus' death shows the wrath of God against sin. Let's look at Isaiah 53. 
We're not going to look at all of these scriptures. I'm just going to read Isaiah 53 and then I'll reference the other ones. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. Yeah, very popular scripture. You guys have probably all heard this before many times. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he, this is Jesus, has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. So he was taking God's wrath. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement, that Hebrew word means punishment, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So Jesus took punishment, that punishment comes from the judge, which is God, he was stricken by God. These other scriptures I have here in the outline, John 12, 31 through 32, Jesus referenced his crucifixion and said that was the moment when he would, uh, he said he called that the moment that the world would be judged. So he said that now is the judgment of this world and now I will draw all peoples to myself when I'm lifted up from the earth. He said that's a reference to him being actually lifted and then put on a cross. He was saying his crucifixion meant judgment. That's what John 12 is saying. Then Romans 3.25 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins by his blood. Propitiation is a, is a big word, and it means appeasement, which is also kind of a big word. <laughs> so I'll explain what it means. It basically means to satisfy justice. So when somebody does something wrong and there's a penalty that's deserved, that penalty has to be satisfied. So Jesus satisfied the penalty that we deserved when it was poured out upon him or when he suffered that penalty. And that was done by his blood, which of course is a reference to his death. So all these scriptures are a reference to the judgment, punishment, the wrath of God against sin in how Jesus died. Then you get to that next subpoint. The sacrifice of Jesus' death shows God's love. Jesus suffering wrath so that we wouldn't have to. That shows love and that he died in our place. Let's look at Romans, Romans 2. Romans 2. Verses 4 through 6. Another common scripture, Romans 2, verse 4, starting there, says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So we have to pause there because a lot of people take this scripture out of context. When he's talking about his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, what kind of longsuffering is he dealing with? You keep reading. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. So this is Paul saying, God showed you goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. In other words, he was patient with you in your sin. And the way he showed patience, and ultimately a chance for you to be saved, is his goodness. But if you keep on sinning and ignore that goodness, he says you're treasuring up for yourself wrath. So God's love is shown here in that offering the chance for people to be saved by Christ taking the penalty for them is a show of God's love. The sacrifice that he made of himself for the sake of other people. Romans 5, 8, and 9 is another popular one that says, God demonstrates his own love, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ's death shows God's love. Then it says, much more we shall be saved from wrath through him, saved by his life. And then 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. So Christ laying down his life, Christ's death shows the love of God in the sacrifice that he made. So scripture overall, the New Testament, including Isaiah, gives you a well-rounded picture of the crucifixion. 
in that it shows both the wrath of God and the love of God. God's kingdom, or the coming of the kingdom, also shows both. We know that for believers, when you become a part of the kingdom, you also inherit its advantages, its blessings, its joys, its graces. We enjoy God's love by being in the kingdom. But if you ignore the gospel, then when the kingdom comes, it's judgment for your sin. And it's actually pretty scary, as what 2 Thessalonians is talking about. And you can boil all that down in the cross by telling a person and understanding for yourself. The cross shows what your sin deserves, what you deserve for your sin, but it also shows God's love and that he suffered that for you. So it's just that balance that's really important. Yes? Yeah. You know, when you started talking about um, this Romans 2 verse 4, and you said so many people get this turned around. Like it's it's so misunderstood. What what? Maybe I missed it, but what is the under the misunderstanding that people get? So the misunderstanding is not necessarily about the verse itself, but about its context. What I mean by that is a lot of people take that verse out of context, and they will say God's goodness leads you to repentance. God's goodness leads you to repentance. But the point is that that goodness is seated or actually sandwiched in between two verses about God's wrath. And it, it's trying to say that you you don't actually understand what God's goodness is unless you know the wrath that you deserve and that he's saving you from. Right? You have to know both. So God, you know that God is good because he saved you from his wrath. But if there's no wrath, goodness is cheapened and doesn't have any value and it's easily exploited. Knowledge of his wrath. Right? Exactly. So that's what I mean by it's it's misunderstood because it's taken out of context. It's people teach God God's goodness without his wrath, which is actually impossible. You're not going to know what God's goodness really means unless you understand his wrath as well. That's why when you teach the cross, same thing. You're not just telling people when you talk about the cross that it shows God's love. You're also saying it shows his wrath because the Bible says it also shows his wrath. So if, if it's talking about the kingdom, if it's talking about the cross, there's a perfect balance between the wrath of God and the love of God. And you have to communicate both if a person's going to understand their need to repent. Okay, last bullet point. The coming kingdom should motivate people to change their ways and obey the gospel. Mark 1.15, we don't have to turn there. Make note of that one. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe in the gospel. That's a verse where Jesus simply states that you should want to repent because the kingdom of God is coming. You should want to change your ways. That's what repentance is. Change your mind, change your ways. Matthew 3, 2 is John the Baptist also telling people to repent because of the kingdom of God coming. Now let's actually turn to Acts 17. This is, like I said, the main scripture. Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. This one scripture, like I was saying earlier, kind of sums up this entire part one that we've been going over and just kind of says it all really well. Acts 17, starting verse 30 says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. There's God's grace right there. He's going to wipe away your sin, his goodness, right, or his love. Then he says, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Here's where he states the reason. Here's why you need to repent. He says, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So God's really good because he's going to wipe away all your sin, forgive you. But you should repent because the kingdom of God's going to come and when it comes, it's going to be judgment. You shouldn't want to be under that judgment. So you should understand his goodness, but you should also understand his wrath. You should repent. We got a microphone for blue one. Yeah, it's on. <laughs>
Thank you. The point in 115 that the time is fulfilled, and my understanding is correctly that the day that Christ was crucified, that time was fulfilled. It is but through God's grace that he's not returned because he wants to see all people come to him. Yeah. And yeah. it's our responsibility to help them do that. <laughs> well, not help them, but to do our part, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. When, yeah, when you set it up, comment just like the, uh, you know, historically, how, how it actually happened. When Jesus said the time is fulfilled, he's saying the time for the kingdom of God to come or the time that was needed to pass before the kingdom of God to come has expired. In other words, you don't have to wait any longer. No more waiting. Then that's where he gets into the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom's going to be here right now. Later, he says the times of the Gentiles has yet to be fulfilled. That's what we call the church age. In other words, the time that God gives before he judges the world to get people saved, essentially. Ultimately, the Gentiles, because the Jews uh, were given their covenant, and then the covenants opened to the Gentiles, which is us, basically. So we're waiting for the time before judgment to be fulfilled right now. That's the, the age that we're in, and I think we're at the end of it. <laughs> I don't think we got much time left. So be all the more urgent. Amen. Okay. That's part one. Jacob's going to get into part two, which talks about what do you got to do about it? Which way? This way? Okay. Yes, I'll be talking about what someone needs to hear when you're preaching the gospel. So with all that in mind, um, okay, now that we know that, what steps do I take? Someone might ask themselves. So the three three points that I'll be making is repent, believe, and follow. Uh, just to explain repent, start off, um, the Greek meaning for it means to change your mind. Because if you change your mind, every every action that you ever have in your life starts with a thought, and then you out, then act on your thought. If you change your mind, change your thoughts, will uh, pave the way for you going forward uh, and change your actions. So we'll stay in Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. Um, I'm not going to read it again, but why we need to repent. 31, because he has appointed a day on which he'll judge the, uh, the world in righteousness by Jesus. That is the biggest reason you need to repent, because you want to be a citizen of heaven. You want to have your golden ticket to get it, and that's Jesus. So turning away from that sin. Another scripture would be Luke 13, 5, 3, 3 and 5. Um, basically, I'm not going to make you turn there. It just says, repent, or all likewise perish. And then I will have you turn to Acts 2, 38. Just the context while you're flitting, flipping there as Peter gives um, a teaching um, of how they crucified Jesus, essentially, and so they, their response is, what do we do? And the first thing he says in 38, he says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's the verse 2 right there. Repent, and let everyone be baptized. If you truly believe, you will be baptized. But the first thing that someone is to do is to turn from their former life. So a lot of people are like, well, why would I change myself? It's who I am. If yourself is contradictory to the word or Jesus, that is a problem. You are not a citizen of heaven for that um, reason. Okay, the next would be believe. I'll just read it. Believe in who Jesus is and what he said. Uh, first, John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, let, your, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. Uh, there's him directly saying, believe in him. And then six, this one, this is a great one to have in your arsenal. I know it's probably commonly used. Um, however, it says, I'm, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's the kicker. No one comes to the Father except through me. So a lot of people may ask, how do I get to heaven? 
very locational. I, I don't want to go to hell. I want to get to heaven. The first thing is you need to have a relationship with the Father. And Jesus used this verse, well, referenced this verse to say, hey, how's your relationship with God? It can only have a relationship with God through Jesus because he said in his words, no one comes to the Father except through me. So you need to believe in that first and foremost. And then second, that's who he is, the bridge. And then the what, um, we can go to John 3.36. John the Baptist says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does, does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Um, yeah, there's that bridge again. He's that bridge to God. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. I think it says in 1 John, I can't remember the scripture. It says, whoever, I'm going to flip there. It's 1 John 2, 3. Let me find it real quick. 1 John uh, 2, verse 23. I don't know if you want to flip there, but it says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son uh, has the Father also. That is 1 John 2, verse 23. I'll have you go back to John chapter 5. Last scripture here. Verse 24. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. I'm going to reference another scripture about what it means to believe, but I'm going to get through follow first. Um, third point would be follow. Obey Jesus' words and his commandments. Uh, going back to John 14. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see that Russian here. All right, I'll just read it real quick. For if you have believed in Moses, you have believed in me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Really good. Yeah, that was definitely for the Jewish audience that he was talking to. The whole Bible is written about Jesus. It's all it's all about him. That's a great verse. Okay. First John fourteen. Excuse me, John fourteen. Verse twenty one. I love this verse. It says, He who has my commandments and keeps them. It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Yeah, it's you can say you love Jesus all you want, and you can profess that, but he, if you love, he says even in fifteen right here, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's proof that you love Jesus, and so you have to follow in order to be his disciple. Verse 23, he says again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Um, it says similar things in 1 John 5, verse 2 through 3. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Verse 3, for if this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, following him. Not just enough to profess. And I'll actually just going to, I just thought of a scripture, so I'm going to flip there real quick. It's in Titus 1, verse 16. It says, they profess to know God, but in their works they deny them. Being abominable, abominable disobedient and disqualified from every good work. 
you can say that you know God or love Jesus all you want if you don't have the fruit means nothing words are empty Jacob may I comment yeah. on 23 um, the end of that scripture you know if anyone loves me he will keep my word my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him so that's the inhabitation of the father and the son that really solidifies our relationship yeah you have you're in the inner circle <laughs> the three of us you did yeah that's exciting um, and the final scripture, it's not on there, but it's really, really good for um, the follow point. It's James 2, verse um, 226. For as the body is dead without the spirit, so faith without works is dead also. That goes back to the Titus verse that I referenced as well. You can profess, but if there's not the fruit, it means nothing. You deny him in your actions if they're unrighteous. And so um, I, I always like to use this analogy. Um, if I'm on invocation at Hawaii, the sirens go off, and there's a warning that the volcano is erupting. I'm going to take the first plane out of there because I believe those warnings, and I believe that the volcano is erupting, and my fruit is getting on the plane. If I just profess, to like, okay, I believe the warnings, I believe that the volcano is going to erupt, and enjoy my pina colada, virgin pina colada, <laughs> that, that's not sincere. So it comes down to turning from sin, believing in him, and if you truly believe, you will follow. Yeah, going into part three here. So that's, that's necessary um, for every believer to know, or anyone who wants to become a follower of Christ. Okay. Okay, part three, how to start sharing the gospel practically. First point, every believer is supposed to preach the gospel, and we'll flip to those scriptures. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Great commission. Um, then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And the, the verse that I want to highlight the most is 20. So he says, he gives his um, direction to the disciples, saying, Make disciples of all nations and baptize them. And once you do, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. They are to make disciples, and they are to make disciples, and they are to make the disciples. There's different roles in the church, like evangelists would be full-time preaching the gospel, and it's more quantity and numbers. However, everyone in individual lives, it's going to look different. But that's why we're here. Or other people gather souls for the coming kingdom. We want there to be a big party in the kingdom, so we gotta have more people. Okay, Acts eight verse four. This is more explicit. Verse four. Therefore, those who were scattered. I went everywhere preaching the word. So in the context, Saul is persecuting the church. Um, and verse 3 actually says, um, For Saul, he made havoc on the church, entering every house and dragging them off, men and women, committing them to prison. So he's persecuting the church. So what's the church's response? To hide? No. They scattered and everywhere preaching the gospel. Didn't just say the evangelists were scattered and preached the gospel. That the church was. Um, and I love how that's that, their response. Keep preaching the word. That's, that, it's sincere to them. Not let it hinder them. And next verse is Acts 11. Verse 19 through 21. 
Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as, oh, say it again, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, uh, preaching the word to one, to, to no one, but only the Jews. I'm going to keep reading. Verse 20. But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching Lord Jesus. Um, 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. It's everyone that preaches the gospel. Those are some great scriptures to reference when talking to other believers, encouraging them to preach the gospel as well. Uh, let's go to the second point here. There's only two reasons for why believers don't share their faith. The first one is lack of, lack of knowledge or education. And the second one is unwillingness. So, lack of knowledge can be fixed with just a little time and dedication to the word. However, unwillingness is a matter of the heart, um, which I would pray about. And third point, if you decide uh, to be willing and educate yourself, you will share your faith. It's only a matter of fact, it happened to me. I hope it happens to you. <laughs> All right, David. Okay. Part of why we're doing this is to help educate you guys. So if you already have a willing heart, you'll be unstoppable. If you don't, this knowledge isn't going to help you unless you change your heart. <laughs> okay, so the next disclaimer here. So this is where we really get into practical advice. Now we have to say, I'll just read it off first. The following is not a one-size-fits-all model for evangelism. You must learn to be led by the Spirit and discernment to interact with every individual uniquely. In other words, people are different in so many ways. Everyone's unique. And you are not going to be able to reach every person with this specific model. This is only something to get you started, and that's it. So if you're doing nothing, you can at least do this. Once you start doing this, you will learn, your discernment will grow, your ability to hear from the Spirit will grow, especially as you increase in your knowledge of the Word, and then this model will change, and it will actually be different for every single person. But you're not going to be able to do that and get good at it until you start somewhere. So this is a starting point, and that's it. This should not be uh, assumed to be used everywhere all the time in perpetuity. So step one, you got to start a conversation or a relationship at some point. The sub points under that, for spontaneous conversations, this means you're striking up a conversation with somebody randomly at any point. Here are two good conversation starters. What's hard in your life, or is there anything that I can pray for you for? Really good questions, especially the first one. If you just ask a person whether you meet him in the grocery store, or it's a coworker, or you're at a park, and you somebody sat on a bench next to you, and whatever, you start a conversation, ask them, hey, what's hard in your life? And if you want, you can add, and can I pray for you for any of those things? You can combine the question, too, and just say, is there anything hard in your life that I can pray for you for or help you with? However you want to arrange that, that question is just a good one to start. Next, if the conversation naturally leads to talk about God, be step two. So sometimes people will naturally start talking about God. Sometimes you'll bring it up. It's just the right, right way to go. Step two, this is about conversation about the gospel. So ask questions to reveal what they believe. First, ask about their relationship with God. Next is ask about what they know about or their view on Jesus, and then you can correct what's wrong or unknown with scripture and simple points. Make sure you focus on Jesus. So an example of how this might go, this happens all the time. Um, you ask a person what's hard in their life, they tell you. Sometimes they just automatically start talking about God, sometimes they don't. Let's say you bring up God, you just say, hey, you know, do you, are you a believer? Do you have a relationship with God? What are your thoughts on God? You know, and people will typically say, that they have some kind of knowledge of God, and it's typically based on whatever their religion or beliefs are. Some people will say Jesus, but they're just not believers yet. They just think they are. Some people will say Buddha. Some people will say Muhammad. People have different bridges 
to God. And they're typically going to say what that is. Your job is then to ask what they think about Jesus after that. Because we know that Jesus is the bridge to God. And once they have told you what they think about God and what they think about Jesus, that will give you plenty to work with. Because you're going to hear a lot of things in what they say. That will give you an opportunity to correct. Now, I have to also say that when you're going to correct what's wrong and what someone believes, you really have to make sure that you kind of ride the wave of how the conversation is going and don't just try to force your agenda to fix the things that they believe are wrong. You do have to be willing to be bold, but you also have to be sensitive to just how the person is. It can be their demeanor. They might show some timidity, and they just don't want to have a long conversation. There's different ways that it'll go. So you can't assume every time you have to say something to correct what they believe. The point is that when you ask these types of questions, it's going to give you an opportunity to say things. Just make sure you're not forceful uh, or forcing your agenda. Another thing is to not be rushed. If you try to rush through conversation, people are not going to listen because it feels tense when you do that. When people are stressed or tense, they don't listen very well. So make sure you're calm, number one. Number two, it's always good to ask them if they even want to hear these points. So you don't have to say, would you like to hear some information about Jesus Christ? <laughs> like, doesn't mean you ask like that. It just simply means you could say, hey, like, you know, if you're willing, can I make a couple comments for you just about some things about Jesus? You know, something like that. You know? And if they say, yeah, sure, then you can make your points. But if they're kind of in a hurry and they say, no, I don't really want to talk about it right now, you just say, okay, that's fine. Thank you for this conversation. God bless you, whatever. Move on. You just want to make sure you ask permission. Because if you don't get their permission, then they're probably, you don't know if they're even going to listen to you. Because they might not even care. You know? So it's just generally good as just a social skill to ask them permission before you make your points. And make sure you're not rushed. Now let's get into step three. If you get the opportunity and they're interested and they're listening, this is where you can teach what they must do. That's the repent, believe, follow thing we went over earlier. So when you, when you correct what's wrong or you start talking about Jesus, the idea is that you're going to say, hey, you know, Jesus died to show God's wrath for you know, your sin, my sin. And he died to show his love. He took that wrath for you. But judgment's going to come one day. And the Bible says we need to be part of his kingdom if we're going to be saved from wrath. Then, if they keep listening, in order to be part of the kingdom, Jesus said you have to repent, turn from your sin, believe in who he is and what he said, and start to follow him. Obey the gospel. Obey the word. Right? You just talk like that. And if they keep listening you'll have really good opportunity there. A lot of the relationships that I still have to this day, whether it's with unbelievers or believers um, that I'm talking to, have started through conversations like this. Many of them have not, but many of them have. And so I know that this, this model works as just a, just a really good starting point. So you can, you can use this, but again, it's not a one-size-fits-all model, so make sure you're willing to, to uh, adjust your ways as the spirit and as discernment teaches you otherwise. That overall consideration at the bottom of that section there just says pursue a relationship whenever possible. This is where the extent of your willingness comes into play. Because if you have a chance to be in this person's life to continue to teach and disciple them, you should take that advantage. You should take that, take that opportunity. Assuming it's appropriate. If you don't have the opportunity, don't worry about it. But if you have a chance to build a relationship and teach somebody more about the gospel, you should. you got to ask yourself, if you're going to do this, if you're going to start sharing your faith, you also have to be willing to have the relationships and invest in the relationships. You're not just investing in or putting time in you know, getting out of your comfort zone and talking about Jesus with people. This is about being willing to have relationships with people to lead them to Christ or further into Christ, I should say. So just make sure your willingness includes the willingness to pursue a relationship whenever possible. And for these points of encouragement, no matter what happens, every interaction is valuable. This is something I remind myself of often. There is such a thing as failure, which is the next point. Don't be discouraged by failure. You can learn from failure. The reason why that's connected with the first point is because in an interaction, if it goes badly for whatever reason, even if they didn't learn something, you did. 
and that's good. If they learn something, that's also a plus. But at the very least, you learn something, and you gave yourself the opportunity to become more effective moving forward. I have learned a lot from doing evangelism and experientially seeing di people's different responses and what works well and what doesn't. And the only way you're going to learn those things is by doing it. You have to start somewhere. Next bullet point. This is where it gets into the role that we have. Some people sow the seed, which means they share the word with someone as their first time hearing it. Some people water the seed, which means they encourage the growth of what someone already knows. And some harvest, that means lead a person to salvation and bring them into the church. Every step is critically important. So, if you sowed a seed and that person walked away, that's not a failure. Because you sowed a seed. But in order for there to be a harvest, a seed had to be sown at some point. Right? There's a lot of believers who get discouraged because like, man, this person, like, they're always bringing people into the church and they get so many people to come and they get so many people to join their Bible study or whatever. And it's like they've prayed with, you know, however many people to receive salvation. Number one, a prayer of salvation doesn't save anybody unless they're actually repenting and believing. But we get so fixed on the numbers, right? It's 50 people. I led 50 people to the Lord. Da, da, da. Even if it were, let's say, 50 people, 2022, you led 50 people to Christ and it actually happened. That just means you harvested 20 or 50 souls. But lots of other people sowed the seed and watered it. And you don't get to take credit for who did the sowing and watering. You just get to take credit for the harvesting. In other words, Paul says you'll be reward, reward according to your own labor. So there's going to be a reward for that work that you did. But there's going to be a lot of other people that are rewarded in heaven for the sowing and watering that they did. And it's God who gives the increase, Paul said. So whether you're a sower, a waterer, or a harvester, every step in the process is essential. So don't be discouraged because you're just seems like you're sowing a lot of seed and not doing any harvesting. Somebody's going to harvest that, the growth or the fruit from that seed later. And it might not be you, and that's okay. You still played an essential part in the process. So always keep that in mind. I remind myself of this all the time, that at least I'm sowing a seed. Okay, now what we're going to do is a group activity. Congratulations, you made it through session one. Unless you guys have questions, yeah. Um, I think a, a really good icebreaker or conversation starter as well can also be a simple compliment. Oh, yeah. Just telling someone anything nice i don't know but that's a a really good conversation starter as well um i thought i wanted to mention yeah great comment to add yeah compliments work yeah um there was a time where i complimented a guy's mustache and he lit up like the sun and just wanted to talk to me just because I complimented his mustache. And I genuinely did like his mustache. I don't think a lot of people can pull it off, you know. But he did really well, really, really well. And, uh, and it was great. It was in line at Lunds and Byerly's. It was awesome. And just complimented his mustache. So compliments go a long way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, keep that in mind. Thanks for adding that, Luke. Uh, any last questions or comments before we move on to this activity? Is this making sense to everyone? Uh, you may end the recording, yeah. Yep. Okay, so for this group activity, here's what we're going to do. Instructions are on there. You're going to practice sharing with each other three things. Number one, what it means that the kingdom of God is coming. Number two, what Jesus' death teaches about both God's wrath and his love. And three, what a person must do to be saved and enter the kingdom. You're going to get in groups of three. So you find two other people. And you can go in a different part of the room if you want. That's up to you. You can stay at your table. And each of you, you can, you can do it one of two ways. You can either have each person go through all three points, or you can have each person take one of those points. The point is that you should be able to know and share what these things are, how you decide to practice that, whether it's one person gets each well, one point or all, uh, each person does all three. That's up to you as long as you're able to understand, take in this information and then be able to communicate it. And of course, this is a safe environment. It's practice, so you don't have to worry about, you know, driving somebody away from the gospel, okay? Um, uh, 
Yeah, no one's going to run out screaming. Yeah, you're just fine. Um, so yeah, we'll take probably at least 15 minutes to do that, but I'll, I'll give, you know, a window of half an hour. Just we'll see how it goes. I'll check in at 15 minutes see what you guys are doing. If you have more you want to practice, then you can do that. But on your marks, get set, go. Cool. 